Hi, I'm Erwin Apple, and at the risk of sounding sappy, I'm sitting here with two people I love, Anna and Maggie, and you are listening to Theatrics. What I'm appreciating about the text of the play is how deftly constructed it is. You know, the greatest compliment that somebody can give me, especially when I do Shakespeare, is, oh, I never heard that line before. And this is the point of college, really, right? I mean, you yeah, go totally. to college so because you're, yeah. you've been sitting New in things. suburbia for 18 years and, right. like, learning math. We're the only BFA in acting in the UC system. We take very seriously being this place where we are a center for the study of acting. Erwin was just telling us he wants to entertain us, not instruct us, not make theater the steamed broccoli of, of the entertainment world. Like, I don't want them to feel like they're going to the dentist. Right. Nothing against dentists out there. Oh my god, we're here again! We are here again, and it hasn't been that long, but I feel like I've seen three million plays oh since I saw you last. I feel like I have been <laughs> under the Chinese knife ice torture mechanic machine thing <laughs> because I was running a show all I, week. And that no, people I heard, who run shows know that right. it's exhausting. Uh, I heard that you have been reported to public health for being a menace <laughs> to health and safety. The labor board, board now knows. All Actors, of those things. Actors Equity knows I'm about be, you. I'm going to be deported, actually. They've asked for, for my papers. For, for injuring um, several cast members. So we, I think, at Out of the Box now have a record for three medical emergencies and three consecutive runs. It was pretty incredible. Mm, yeah. At first, Frankenfurter, the lovely Alex Allen, who did an incredible job as yeah, Frankenfurter. You you saw what did I you did. what did you think? I thought that if if I saw an actor having more fun playing a part, I couldn't remember yeah, it. You know, seriously. that that was like he, everyone but him especially. He lived for that. Yeah. He was like Frankenfurter the house down. Like yeah. that was it. But <laughs> at one point he did some fancy choreography like kick and yeah. kicked right into Columbia's face, Ouch. which was not great. And, yeah. and she was upset. Yeah. Well, deservedly so. I mean, it probably hurt like a yeah. bitch. Ice, um, ice packs. And then the next day, so there was this wig that we had to put on Rocky and he's not wearing very much. And so we put the, the mic pack in his wig because we right. don't want to have it like stuck to his body because you can see it. Yeah. And but then he did all these like acrobatics on stage and it's heavy. So it was like bottom heavy and it flipped the wig off and we kept like flipping the wig off. And so yeah. um, the tech people kept saying, you need to tie that thing down tighter. Right. So I kept tying it down tighter and tighter. And I came up with this solution of like weaving it through the wig cap and then and then wrapping it and bobby pinning it and uh-huh. gluing it to his uh-huh. face. And um, then he fainted because it was too tight. Oh, wow. And who was it that affixed this thing so tightly to his head? That was who me. Did that? that was me. <laughs> That was me. I mean, you tell me, like, it's got to be and tight. Do, I'm like, and, girl, it's going to yeah, be tight. It's okay. going to be tight. It's going to be tight. It is going to be tight. You and, are going to be able to... And then I hear there was a glitter incident. Oh, man, glitter. This is why they don't let glitter in the theater. <laughs> glitter in the theater is nasty and terrible. So, again, Alex, I love him, but he's very sweaty. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's doing a well, lot. Well, he's doing of, a lot. Oh, my yeah, God. He's running. He's literally running. Like, yeah just sprints you know mm-hmm. here there and everywhere and singing like and belting while he does this Dancing. and so we in heels in huge in heels. heels so you know we do up his face and whatever and 
he comes off at intermission and all of the makeup has melted and there's glitter in his eye and his eyes are red and puffy and he's like weeping and we had to like put him out of the shower and he was like, I can't see, I can't see. And like, you can see and his face was all red and puffy. His nose was running. So he comes back the next day in like glasses at eight o'clock at night. And he's like, I have allergic conjunctivitis from the glitter. So no more glitter people. No glitter, no No glitter, glitter. no glitter in the theater, a glitterless Rocky horror. You know what? That's fine. Because somebody came in. We told them no outside props, but somebody came in and it was this this moment where they just like put their hand up and just threw glitter (gasps) all over the stage. And it was a rain of glitter. And everybody who works in the theater and knows what that means just cried. Just cried. Cried. It, you know, it was a show, my viewing of it, it was a show that looked like it was you know, one beat behind major medical emergencies at all times. <laughs> I think like, the Rocky Horror should know, be, though. Oh, like, yeah. I feel like if oh, you're yeah. not... The if, risk <laughs> is real. <laughs> if somebody isn't... <laughs> If somebody isn't upset or hurt by right. the end, then you right. haven't done it correctly. Right. And I was kind of proud of... I, well, oh, let me just say that this was one of the things I loved the most about the Rocky Horror Show was that when we showed up, to, to, you know, because I go to center stage a lot, yeah. you know, to see stuff. And uh, we park and I'm like, there are all these people mm, in line. Yes. And we were, it was like 15, 20 minutes before curtain. Yep. And, and David and I are like, look at all these people. You know, people it was in great. Costume, people in costume. People all ages too. Yeah, that was people super. Are excited. People like, are excited. you know, you had. You had uh, people in their twenties, people you know, through through people who maybe um, saw the original Rocky Horror in the seventies. It was so it was so cool, and everyone was was having a great time in the audience and on stage. And David and I just thought it was jazzy and fabulous. It was jazzy. It was. It was really the voices. You get such good talent for that show. Yeah, we had a couple of people who just like sort of blew my mind because it's yeah. it's you know every, and they will admit it too. The actors will admit it that like okay, it's Rocky Horror. It's a little dumb. It's you know sort of nonsensical yeah. and whatever. You the know, plot but doesn't make sense. It doesn't make any sense at all. But like, <laughs> it's true. It doesn't. <laughs> Is there a plot? I think so. Uh, I just think people it's a, come I just, to a castle. I just think things it's an orgy, <laughs> right? <laughs> I think that that's it's just an orgy with talking. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, uh, Zachary Allen Thompson is who played Riff Raff. He has yeah. an incredible voice. Um, Alex yeah. Allen, who we talked about before, as Frankenfurter. Yeah. Great job. Dylan Yuhas is a hilarious comic talent, and he played Brad Majors, and he did a great oh, job. Oh, he was good. Now, he what so what have I seen him in before? Because I was so looking at him, and I was him. like, oh, I know him. He I was in t- uh, One Man, Two Governors. He was okay. the uh, the douchey, one of the... Okay. One of the douches. Wow. Um, he, he's been in a ton of stuff. He's been yeah. in a bunch of okay. our stuff. He was yeah. in Bonnie and Clyde. He was in he Bloody was Bloody Andrew good. Jackson. He's always great. He's he's one of those people who you're like, you hire him and you know that you're going to get a great performance. So. And and Janet. I know I so saw cute. Janet when um, that young lady was a high school student. Oh, I yeah. Allison Lewis. Yeah. And her voice is still amazingly mm-hmm. good. She was... She was, I enjoyed her more than, um, you know, what's her name? Susan Sarandon. Yeah. She was just, just better. Just better. <laughs> frankly, just better. 
Uh, and and I really liked it as a play. You know, I've never seen it yeah, on stage. it's fun. Like, yeah. it's constant action. And, and you guys were taking some risks there, too. Were we? Tell me about I the risks, Anna. Was, I, I mean... At one point, I considered bringing my son Ben to mm. it, and I was so glad that I didn't yeah. do that. People were asking. I was like, <laughs> people were asking. I said, "Well, it's it's campy, yeah, but uh, to be real, there are some jokes that are very like explicit. Yeah. Like, there's absolutely a number of hand job jokes. Yeah. Like, it's just, there just are. Like, the, yeah. So you know, we kind of we were like, uh, it's sort of like sixteen, eighteen plus kind of a deal, just yeah. because they go to town. They do." I mean, and it's hysterically funny. Oh yeah. I mean, it's and it's. I'm just. I'm. I'm. I applaud the actors and and Samantha Eve for taking that kind of risk because you really. I mean, if you're going to do Rocky Horror, you really have to yeah, push you it to go that. Over the you know, top. you just got to do that. over the top. Yeah, because sure. otherwise, it's it's. Oh yeah, you can't have a you what? can't have boring Rocky Horror right. like that's the a, expurgated <laughs> Rocky Horror. <laughs> that's a no one wants to see that. <laughs> no one wants to see that. No at one all. wants to see that. <laughs> This is Rocky Horror done and, as a tragedy. Oh, and what was also fun <laughs> is is the the um, you know the kind of volatility. I mean, we talked about this in our previous pro- podcast. The volatility of like who's gonna like how is the audience gonna oh yeah behave? Oh man, there was a night when a drunk woman wandered on stage. Oh man. Oh man. Oh yeah, and it was right in the middle Whoa. of the second act, so there was nothing we could do. Like we, because nobody's on headset backstage, so it wasn't like we could be like somebody wandered on stage. We got to boot them. Like we just one of the actors just sort of pushed her back out into the audience, and she kind of wandered back out into the audience. She was looking for more toilet paper to throw, and we were like, "That part is over, lady. Get it together. Yes. Look yes. at your life choices. <laughs> yes." So I loved it when the people were using the props in the, I know we talked about this earlier too, like how you had the designated people. And I thought that was a violation of the spirit of the thing that, you know, were, were allowed. Oh, people took but it back. But the thing is, they yeah, took, back they the took night. it back. They yeah. did. They were like, no, no, no. Designated area. Uh-uh. The, pre, the pre-show speech got longer every night yeah, because every bet. night there was some, something <laughs> that happened that, that Samantha Eve, the director right, was like, right. oh man, now I got to tell them not to do that. There was one night where once some Somebody took, they had it, and they they had the toilet paper roll, and they had it back like they were about, and, and yeah. he and Frankenfurter made eye contact because Man. he was going to launch it right <gasps> into his face, and Frankenfurter was like, no, no. He yes. did the full, like, don't rape me, finger right. in the face, no, loud too. yelling no. And the, <laughs> and the guy just kind of dropped the toilet he paper roll. Like, and it's like, that's what happens. You know, people yeah. are going to launch shit at you, and you got to be yeah. able to be like, not wow. on tonight, my friend. That's, That's not what this show is about. This show is about making a mess, but it's not about hitting me in the face. So it sold out. Sold out. People were waiting in line. People it was loved awesome. it. Oh, and somebody got engaged. Oh, that's so cute. So cute. They came up on stage after the show. They were friends of um, uh, Sam's parents, Sally and Irwin Eve, who run Okiali. And uh, they, he, you know, the guy came up. He was like, I want to propose to my girlfriend. And so we, we brought them up after the show, and they proposed on stage, and it was so cute. That is cute. Out of the box theater, bringing people together. Oh, oh, cute! We're gonna have to bring some props, send props to their wedding. Room, I know, you know, right? Just send a right. full send Rocky Horror. Yeah, yes, send some toast. <laughs> Just a, an envelope with toast <laughs> in it. Happy wedding. <laughs> well, we've seen a bunch of stuff. Yeah, what so. else did we see? Oh my gosh! Well, we saw the Westmont show, yes. the Resistible Rise of Arturo Ui. 
Yes, directed by Mitchell Thomas, who did a great job. Great job. Uh, starring Elena White as the title role, the gangster in charge of the cauliflower racket. What a cool show. It was a cool show. Yeah, really, really well done. Like The staging, the, the, and the... Okay, I don't know if you're... For me, this is, like, the most memorable moment, although there are other moments that were, you know... Um, the, the, the emphasis is, you know, you're watching the play, you're, you're engrossed in the brutality of the rise mm. of Arturo Ui mm-hmm. and how mm-hmm. scary he is and how much power he gets and, and the connections we see to today's politics and, yep. and how it's a metaphor for the rise of Hitler. I mean, I was looking at all of that and uh, the brutality and, and then and, and those Brecht, there are so many Brechtian conceits that we've grown used to as audience members, like the presence of, of a, of a sound engineer on mm-hmm. stage mm-hmm. or, you know, the over the top costuming or right. the switching back and forth of the actor from the role, his, his or her, status as a human being or an individual and this character, all that, you know, all mm-hmm. that we, we have naturalized. That's part of our theatrical. We Lexicon. understand it. Yeah. yeah. It, it doesn't disrupt. Right. right. It doesn't right, right, right. like sure. grab us. And, and, um, and so I was thinking about, it's still super interesting to watch, yeah, but it doesn't it was well done. Oh yeah. No, it was super well done. And then, but there was this moment of staging that I thought, um, was really interesting on Mitchell's part where it was one of the later moments of the play, like right before the end, he lit the audience or he had the, the oh, audience uh-huh. come up in, in full light. So, right. so we had been kind of watching them as spectacle, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. And right when the, it was just so, so effective. Thematically, thematically, so much of it is about, uh, you know, the people who are watching and saying nothing, right? Right. Like the good men who stand by and do nothing. And so the idea of lighting the audience, when they bring people, actors into, into the audience and into the, the aisles of the theater and they sort of turned the entire thing into like I love that. I love yeah. it when I'm when I'm sort of yeah. forced into a place of having an you know like I'm I'm forced to have an opinion because yeah. I'm now part of the scenery. Well, you know, I usually hate that. We've talked in private about how <laughs> well, I'm like, oh no, they're talking to me. I hate that. But when I they feel talk like to me. I feel like they were not talking <laughs> true, true. But I feel like they were not talking at us. No, I right. feel like they were talking no, no, no. and it was just sort was, of implied and further. Yes, that it was we were that, but it was striking. It was, it was. so thematically Absolutely. perfect, and it it hit the dramatic arc of of the play. So it was, and it was I nice loved fun. what they did with the use of live video feed. Oh yes, I I know that we've had a couple of shows uh, in the past uh, couple of months that have tried to use this live video feed in various ways, and you know, to varying levels of success. But I think that that this was very successful yeah. because it really showed how in kind of the modern world, uh, photograph, video, but like carefully edited, carefully curated 
video can create this sort of like ground level propaganda. You yeah. know, I mean, it's like your Facebook feed, like you curate what you want people to see on your Facebook feed. Yeah. And so what they were using the video for was really just creating uh, these dramatic moments, right. these nationalistic right. moments, these moments of power and strength for the gangster Arturo. And, I, and, and then, you know, you kind of see them on the background and it's sort of like, you know, oh, she's posing for like the Vogue cover. Yeah. And you think about like, okay, like this is somebody yeah. who would be on the Vogue and, cover. And, see, and what does exactly that say? That's exactly what I mean. It, that was exactly the kind of updating or right. that's a, such a dumb, inadequate word update. That it, it was such a... Um, really embracing Brechtian ideas beyond just the, the things he did. But, right. you know, finding It's not just copying Brecht, yeah, but it's, exactly. it's using the ideas that Brecht used, but using the tools that we have right. now. Right, And, uh, yeah, like adapting it for... And, and I thought the cross-gender casting oh of Arturo was brilliant. So good. I mean, not so just... So good. Because and it made her so performative. Yes. She was... Really, she was great. Interesting to watch. You know who else I liked were the other two gangsters. Yeah. Um, 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 Ernesto. Or, um, I can't remember the girl's name. She was in yeah. Blood Wedding, uh, but okay. she was unrecognizable as um, the the gangster who's the florist. Oh yes. Um, With and she had like a uh, she had like the club a, foot yes, or the, the club foot. Like I I didn't even yeah. recognize yeah, her as being this arch. like sort of ingenue from Blood Wedding, yes. and all of a sudden she's this really gnarly looking, yeah, like evil villain. Evil. And then the the um, the gangster again, whose name I don't know, but who who would keep the hats of the people yeah. that he had murdered. Yeah. I mean these these kids like they were really good. Yeah, really good casting. Yeah. Good casting, I'm sure a lot of good coaching on, on Mitchell's part sure. to get them to do those kind of outrageous parts. Yeah. Too. I loved how how out there all the characters were. I loved yeah. it. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, that was it so was great. great. And I loved that how it started with these like strains of farce yeah. that then became so apparent that the farcy aspects of it yeah. were like the deep, horrible aspects of it. You know, I mean, you kind of look at farce and you're like, meh, 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 slamming yeah. doors and people having sex. And it's like, no, no, no. This is how you make farce dark. Right. It was, it was dark. Yeah. It was super dark. But really thought provoking. Really good. Yeah. Yeah. Fun times. Well, what else have we seen? Well, I went to see, and then there were none. Oh yes. Tell me all about it. That was at, uh, San Marcos High School. Mm -hmm. Directed by Riley Barris. It was. And it had, you know, it was based on the, well, we talked about this earlier. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it, yes. Based on Agatha Christie's <laughs> <laughs> novel, and then there were, were none. You know, she was a, Christie had some of the biggest uh, Broadway, or not Broadway, but theatrical successes yeah. of, of the 20th century. The long the longest running play. Give me Mouse some Trap, examples. The Mousetrap. I mean, see, not Mousetrap? necessarily one that gets read and studied mm, and remounted, yeah, but sure. legs, like seriously, <laughs> yeah, moneymaker, hugely <laughs> profitable. Uh, and, but this one wasn't, and then there were none. Was a novel, and it wasn't wasn't a play until okay. you know maybe the sixties or something. Okay, so you know, I was. We had just come off that weird hot spell in Santa Barbara remember oh man it was a million degrees it was like a million degrees and oh, it's it like awful. global weirding and yeah. you just are like 
I'm so sick of summer right now. When I lived in Oakland, we called it crime season because everybody was hot and pissed off and they would steal your car. Yeah. But in Santa Barbara, it's just, I don't... It's just hot. It's just hot. Yeah. And no car, less car theft. Less car theft. Right. So I was sick of that. And it luckily, it was a nice chilly day. And I spent the afternoon watching, and then there were none. And, and it was just... Just like having a cup of Earl Grey tea, it was just so I like that feeling cozy and and just watching the actors. Was it a good play, play for a high school? Oh yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, I feel like it's such a limited palette of like shows yeah. that you can do in a high school, and I, I always applaud people when they come up with new interesting stuff that That's we haven't seen true. before. Like because the, there are so many restraints. Yeah. So yeah. it's nice when you can find a play that you can do it's great for the students they still get a lot out of it so that's good to hear yeah and it uh admirably staged and and the and the actors were i mean it it was uh they were playing parts very other than themselves you know they're playing like older british people from (laughs) they're playing 70 years ago characters from clue yeah exactly (laughs) and uh and then there were some really neatly stagey bits, you know, okay, yeah. where where you get to just embrace how stagey and absolutely not like naturalism this is. <laughs> you know. Uh and and I think Riley Barris probably had a lot of fun directing that some sounds of that. like it. So yeah, yeah it was oh, that's really great. cool. So yeah. that's San Marcos and that they're running for another oh, weekend. Yeah, that's right. So go see it. Yeah, dude. go see that. Wait, no, they're not, maybe. Oh. No. Mm. Stop stop saying that. Maybe they're done. They they might be done. <laughs> <laughs> and um we're gonna we are gonna talk very soon with Irwin. Yes, we've got Apple um, about Arthur. I keep wanting to say Arthur Murray, but it's not. That's a dance instructor. Arthur Murray, yeah. Arthur Murray's um, cha-cha <laughs> session. No, um, Arthur Miller, View from the Bridge, right? Running in rep at UCSB with Naked Shakes King Lear, starring mm-hmm. Brian Harwell as, as Lear. Lear. Uh, both directed by Erwin Apple, and he will be with us next discussing all of the details. Oh, I can't wait to listen. Yay! So stay tuned. Hello, we're back again. Today we have Erwin Apple on the pod with us, and we're going to be talking about two shows that he has directed in rep, King Lear and View from the Bridge. Welcome, Erwin. Hi. Hi. Nice to have you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So Maggie and I had the privilege of seeing the show, A View from the Bridge, last night, and we both really liked it yeah really well done Uh, if you you get the chance to go see it you definitely should absolutely it's it's worth seeing it's a i mean i think it's a brilliant play yeah and i love the connection between just the oh see now i'm doing it the literary aspect of the play and really showing that in these really strong moments on stage like the chair thing the chair thing is incredible the okay so (laughs) for the people who have no idea what the chair thing is we should probably give them a hint about that the lifting the chair so the lifting of the chair that, well first of all let me backtrack a little because backtrack. you and i at intermission were talking about how well constructed a play of you from mm-hmm. the bridge is and i had seen like three plays in three days so i was i was like what i love about this play right now is how 
what I'm appreciating about the text of the play is how deftly constructed it is. Yeah. I mean, it is uh, super well constructed. And and your example of the chair, mm-hmm. which is uh, the sort of finishing visual for the first half of the play before intermission. Erwin, um, it was a very cleverly staged show. So Thank t- you. maybe you could tell our listeners who have no I- still have no idea what the chair thing is. <laughs> well, it's funny. As I'm sitting here talking about this, and I hope people come, I'm going to try to talk without giving things yes, right, away. Sure. Like when I choose a play to do, you know, I'm sort of, even though I'm, I'm in academia and I'm an educator, I, I'm not choosing plays because, oh, this is good for you. This is like taking your medicine. Mm. I'm only trying to choose things that I hope are going to be entertaining and mm. very exciting and kind of grab you and make you feel absorbed in it. And you say to yourself, oh, boy, I didn't think that Shakespeare could be that interesting. Or I didn't think, you know, this Arthur Miller, this old Arthur Miller play would, would grab me as much. But I remember reading A View from the Bridge myself. And again, I won't give it away to your audience, but there's a moment of, I'll just say a phone call. And when that moment happened, I remember thinking, I remember going, oh. (laughs) And I thought, that's what's going to make me want to do this play. Because I, as an audience member, felt that thing. And that, I always try to go by that image. And so in in terms of the chair bit that you're talking about, there's there's a bit at the end of Act One where where one character is a little upset with the other character and and does a challenge of lifting a chair in a certain way. Mm -hmm. And what I did was I used a piece of music uh, by Louis Prima Mm -hmm. called The Blizzard, which I really love because it gets more and more chaotic Mm -hmm. as it goes. And as this one character is lifting the chair, and then I use this motif of the foghorn throughout, and the Mm -hmm. act really ends with this giant foghorn. And, um, you know, I'm also in View from the Bridge. I don't know if you knew this, but I wrote all the music I for saw, View from the I Bridge. But I didn't, but, but except for that one Louis Prima piece and, of mm-hmm. course, Paper Doll, Paper which Doll. is a song by the Mills Brothers, which is, is used. But I wrote this music a number of years ago, uh, and, and these jazz musicians in Ashland, Oregon, performed it. Mm. Uh, and in fact, a guy from here, from the music department, John Nathan, mm. wrote charts because I'm a kind of a hack. And <laughs> and uh, but but he wrote charts for me, and and I'll never forget this experience of having these unbelievable musicians yeah. record my music, and that was exciting. And I thought, you know, I I used it once before, and I thought I've got to use it again, and mm-hmm. and. Uh, um, so I'm, and I used it in different ways, and I edited it in different ways, and and so so. Mm-hmm. That's very much part of what that end of Act One that you're you're talking about is right. You know. Well, I, I think maybe the reason Maggie you were thinking of that visual motif is because it's like everything we were talking about the economy of mm-hmm. this piece and how there's nothing there's no fat on this bird. Right. It's all like everything is forwarding the motivation, the action, the 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 pleasure of the text, the pleasure of yeah, the drama. Yeah, you know, that, I think that's a great way to put it, Anna. And I, I love Arthur Miller, and one of the reasons I chose this play is because I don't want these young people to graduate from UCSB and not know who Arthur Miller mm-hmm. is. Mm-hmm. I think he's the greatest. Yeah. And, and I think that, you know, he is... 
he is one of the most interesting figures of the 20th century. You know, he married Marilyn Monroe. <laughs> he was called before the House on American yeah. Activities Committee mm-hmm. to right. testify mm-hmm. to name names. And you and did w- the crucible. That's right. I did the crucible my first that. year here. But what's so interesting about that, that you bring that up, is here in the crucible, you have the main character, John Proctor, right. who at the end of the show will not will not confess to being a witch or his wife being yeah. a witch. And he says, I want my name. I want my name. <laughs> well, again, without giving it right. away, in view from the bridge... Arthur Miller uses the same theme, the same line, I want my name, but it is so twisted in a different Mm -hmm. way. And I just think that is brilliant. And that reminds me of Shakespeare, where where to me, Arthur Miller is sort of a 20th century combination of Shakespeare and Greek theater, you know, where where you take a theme and you explore it through your career, but explore it almost through a prism different ways. And the other thing I love about Arthur Miller is he's not afraid to be epic, Mm, not afraid to go to these great, tragic heights and mm-hmm. depths. You know, he wrote Death of a Salesman, I think, when he was 27. Wow, wow. And and again, it was like, it has the energy of a playwright who's just willing to go there. Yeah. And I think that's also a great thing for our students to do, you know? I mean, so, now yeah. everything is a sort of... You got to be cool about everything. You got to be. Yeah. You got to be. You know. We've got that postmodern sort of reflex, reflection, and distancing, and right, I, right. It's yeah. great. It's great to just air it out. Yeah. And also to be to to just right to 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 let the the kind of range yeah. of human emotion and human experience come out in in just a huge explosion. And I, I I love that. And as you were saying before, it's so well crafted. Uh, the foreshadowing, the the references early in a play that that show up later. You yeah. know, it's it it's wonderful to sit through a well made play. It it you know absolutely. and and again, I kind of feel like I'd like to think I'm a good director, but the truth is, the truth is, I gotta have a good play. You know, yeah. and one of the reasons I love doing Shakespeare, Arthur Miller, etc., is is because I can trust the play more, and so that that I I get very creative with these things. These yeah. things are a a launching point for me. Right. You know, in lots of ways, for me to do crazy things, maybe some things that people wouldn't like or whatever. But I always feel like if we can get people to hear the play, really hear it you know the greatest compliment that somebody can give me especially when you do shakespeare is oh i never heard that line before i didn't know that was in there oh oh i've seen this play 10 times but that scene really hit me as if for the first time because again we're trying to allow people into it and 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 the same thing with 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 arthur miller well this is something that i think you do really well in the pieces of yours that i've seen is filling out uh, the spaces in between the text with with really uh, beautiful and very very meaningful ambiance. So, like you were talking about the foghorns, and and in view from the bridge, you have uh, these big lit up panels that show you know so that you're kind of underneath the bridge. The bridge yeah. is yeah. above On you, bridge, and and you're directing this in the round. So it's yeah. a very small you know that's right space but it feels expansive it feels very much like we are down on the docks we have this feeling 
of the heaviness that the characters have. Yeah. So it does punctuate these really wonderful lines so well to bring them out. Well, thank you again for saying that. And I have to say those, what we call them the light boxes with the images of the bridge, mm-hmm. those are totally the creation of our scenic and lighting designer, Vicki Scott, mm-hmm. who oh, I thought she had that concept and... Uh, that concept arrived through discussions, and I am so glad that she did. And I think they're they're brilliant. I think they're wonderful. You also mentioned in the round, and if, in case some of your audience don't know, that that means audience on all four sides. And uh, Anna, you mentioned a production I had directed a few years ago, which was Streetcar Named Desire, yes. which I did in the round, and I believe right. that that was the first time in that theater, our performing arts theater, we a show had ever been done in the round mm. because of the way it is. It is architecturally, it's not ideal for that. But then once we did it, and I realized the space is big enough, I loved it because it makes me feel like the audience is the set. The audience is the scenery, and you feel like, you know, take the crucible. It's called the crucible, which is like a frying pan. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, It's trapped energy. Right. You know, so you've got the audience all participating in it, the audience feeling part of the neighborhood in view from the bridge. Yeah. So that it's trapped and it and and when you say about about kind of the ambiance and also creating the in-between spaces, I'm really grateful for certain directors and teachers I had in my life that thought that way. And I'm I remember, you know, I had a teacher at Juilliard named Michael Langham who thought that way. I had a director, uh, an English director named Bill Alexander, who I was in Romeo and Juliet in New York. And I remember I played the role of Peter. Mm. And I'm very proud of the fact that the New York Times in that production, I think they liked three actors, Juliet, <laughs> Lady Capulet, and me. And again, I give a lot of credit to the director because mm. he thought Peter was as important as Romeo. Yeah. Mm. He thought the mm. important thing is the whole world of the play. Yeah. And I've had other directors like that as well that that just, um, you know, my my dear friend and colleague, Risa Brainin, is like that. Mm. And, you know, and... And the, the, this this notion of the the, um, uh, the the world of the play, like I yeah. really love. Yeah. I think one of the reasons I like directing more than acting these days is because I like imagining the whole thing, mm-hmm. as opposed to just being one part in the whole thing. It's it's really fun to kind of sit in the dark and and just let the whole thing wash over you. So I just I just find that's really important. If you can kind of mine the text for what's underneath, for what's in between, you can really reveal it to people. Definitely. I mean, characters exist in context. You know, they don't exist in a vacuum. And so if you're hoping that really good dialogue will hold up your play because you have characters just kind of hanging out and saying it, it's not, it's not, Going, you're not expressing the theatricality of the piece the way that it was right. meant to be expressed. Right, and I think that your staging choices uh, are, are are an extension of the theory you just described because you have you, you. I've noticed this in your staging a lot. You use a lot of the penetration of uh, the. I guess some people would call them supernumeraries or, or other characters that fill out the world, the landscape, yes. the, the, the sort of the Petri dish of the play. And they, they come, they, they come in from all sides, you mm-hmm. know, and, and they come in and they sort of endow the audience in a sense with a certain like energy and animation. Oh, that's great. And then they trans, transfer onto the stage so so you almost feel like a 
baton is being passed Mm -hmm. from them through the audience to, and in in a view from the bridge, we have um, the the attorney character, the lawyer character, who's kind of a consolidated chorus figure right right? he sort of represents everyone yeah he's very good he is very good he was in stupid fucking bird that we saw yeah we we also love that he's somebody to watch i think absolutely yeah Yeah. he's a wonderful Mm -hmm. actor on the rise yeah so so we feel this kind of connection that's not just about us being physically very close to the action it's it's about the energy of the actors and the soundscape pulling us all in Well, I so appreciate that because, first of all, you know, I run an acting program at UCSB. I shouldn't say I run it. I'm one of a group of faculty. (laughs) I'm the head of the the BFA, Bachelor of Fine Arts program, but we have an amazing faculty that includes Risa Brainin and Annie Torsilieri and Daniel Stein and Michael Morgan and Tom Whitaker and myself and and lots of other adjuncts that, that participate in it as well. And we're the only BFA in acting in the UC system. And so we take very seriously being this place where we are a center for the study of acting. Yeah. And where, where, and so when I do a play like View from the Bridge, I feel like part of my mission as head of acting is to get people on the stage. People want to mm-hmm. act. Yeah. And I try to tell those actors who are in the ensemble that you are as important to me in this show as the leads are. And that we can't do it without every single one of you. And I really, really mean that because to me, what I learned is, as an actor, I never used to feel this way. I wanted the big part, of course. Mm-hmm. But as a director, I feel like, oh, you don't realize yeah. how important, how everything hinges on every moment. Yeah. So the idea of creating the life of the neighborhood, the other thing, again, without giving it away too much, but I really feel like a view from the bridge is very much about the neighborhood bearing witness yes. to something. So yeah. as a result, we had to, we injected a lot of the neighborhood in places where Arthur Miller doesn't have it in, but we injected yeah. it in, in a way to lead up to where the neighborhood bears witness to what our main character, Eddie, goes through. And speaking of the ensemble really uh, sort of bearing witness and you know holding space in a very strong way. I think uh, one of the ensemble moments that I really noticed was mm-hmm. I think is Lapierre La La Ped La something the butcher. Oh, okay. oh yeah, Lapari. Lapari. I was close. Okay, so the, the butcher. I mean, he doesn't say anything, but right. after you know, there's been there's been this transaction, this social transaction yes. that happens. Uh, that's part of the climax of this piece, and he doesn't say anything, but he gets this moment where all attention is focused yeah. on him, and that's it's right. just it's it's fleeting, yeah. but it's poignant, and that I think is a great example I of t- how the ensemble really, I mean, carries that moment of the the transgression that has happened. That's you know? fantastic. I told him when I. Came him I said you are going to have this moment this moment is going to be very important to me you may think you don't have any lines you have a small part I'm telling you you are going to have this moment that to me is is as important or more important as any moment in the whole show yeah and I'm so glad you picked up on that because (laughs) what's his name let's say his name his name is Dylan Broxson Dylan Broxson you did good Dylan (laughs) (laughs) I'll tell him (laughs) yeah we we were transfixed on yeah that was that was a cool, and and last night the audience it was it was Monday night, but they were. You know, do you remember that p- part where the young ladies <gasps> she gasped? had she 
she had an audible reaction. I she, love it when it they have an audible like, reaction. It was mega <gasps> audible. It was like, <gasps> you we're, know. We're having a lot of that, actually. Yeah. Yeah. You I know, it's it. funny because these, um, sometimes the younger people, the audience, the undergraduates that come and see the shows, you, you, you know, you think, oh, these millennials, they've seen it all. They've had... <laughs> They've had the interweb since birth, and they, you know, I, I don't think they, they underestimate the degree to which theater can move, move them, shock right. them, you know, rad- be radical, be, you know, uh, physical. And it's so nice to hear that because I think that for me and for you, Anna, and probably for you, Erwin, as well, like, you, for, for instance, with this piece of you from the bridge, like as soon as it started going, I was like, okay, I'm in the river and I'm just going to sit with it because I, I can see, like I can see the end and I'm just going to go on this ride because I can, you know, sort of predict like all these turns and things that it's going to take because you get to a point where you, you know how a story progresses. Right. So I love it so much when there are people in the audience who remind me to be surprised, even if I intellectually know where a story may go or what the options are like it's so good to remember to just be like (gasps) that moment is so important it it's that greek kind of surprise though where like the lawyer character in this says like he can see what's gonna happen right yep but it's like greek tragedy it's happening you know it (laughs) this is happening you cannot (laughs) stop this train it is it is too late the other thing is I don't have any illusions. I know that, you know, a lot of our require our audience is required students, requiring them for a certain class to come and see it. I know that, unfortunately, a lot of undergraduates' choice of what to do on a Tuesday night or a Friday <laughs> night, they don't think of theater as a choice for them. Right. It does. It just. It's not in their consciousness. So I really feel it's so important that we give them that experience and kind of teach them that, hey, you know, this isn't boring. Right, this isn't. Yeah. This speaks to you. So yeah. that hopefully they will then come back yes. when they're not required, you know. And, and so I, I have, I feel like one thing I've been exhaustive about is trying to get new audiences in. When we do our Naked Shakes every summer, one of the great things that has happened is our connection with the Freshman Summer Start Program at UCSB. And what that program is, maybe some people in your audience have done that. I don't know if any of you guys did that, where where you come to the college that you're attending six weeks before mm. the quarter or the semester starts, and you are there at college for six weeks. You take classes. You, it's sort of college before college. And we have been able every single year to require all of these freshmen in this program, usually between four and 500, to come to see whatever Shakespeare play we're doing. So what that means is their first cultural experience in college is the way we do Shakespeare. And we have had people who have who have auditioned for our BFA because of that. We've um, had people who've wanted to become theater majors and minors because of that. We've had people who've continued to want to participate because they get turned on by that. They didn't know it was for them. And I always go into their big lecture and speak to them because it's just so important. I mean, where are the new subscribers going to come from? Right. That's true. That's right. And this is the point of college, really, right? I mean, you yeah. go totally. to college so because you're, yeah. you've been sitting new in things. suburbia for 18 years right. and like learning math. 
whatever. (laughs) You know, your parents are telling you it's time to be a dentist. And you go to college and you experience all these new things. And some of it is like, I'm going to drink beer. And some of it is like, I'm going to go to the theater and have my mind blown because I never thought it could be like this. You know, the way we are on campus... If you're going to go drink beer in Isla Vista, you got to walk by us anyway. So <laughs> yeah. just stop by. I know. Come and see a show, and then you can have your beer if you want. You can but, do you both. Know, you know, I'm certainly not against beer. Uh, but but I, I, just, I just, I think the idea of building new audiences, not because they, not because it's a chore for right. them, but, but that it actually says to them, you know what, this could mean something to me in mm-hmm. my life. And you know what? We need it in this culture. I will, I will say, I okay. was I went into college as an archaeology major. Ooh. I didn't know this, Maggie. <laughs> I was going to be an archaeologist. I did not know. That's It's true. It's Love a true that. story. Well, and you then I took a, a theater course, and I became obsessed with yeah. wardrobing. All right, but I'm sorry, but this makes sense to me. <laughs> because, okay, at the risk of sounding very like, you know, this, this here comes from a, you unearth things. <laughs> Yeah. Maggie, which is really great about you. Like but now you do, I don't have to do it And that seems like that's what our archaeologist does. So. I don't have to do it physically in the right, desert. Right, that's right. I can just do it from my laptop. <laughs> I like it. Uh, yeah, I, th- I love the idea of cultivating new audiences and, mm-hmm. and not to... Uh, and sometimes when I've had undergraduates, I'm like, I tell them I'm just an, I'm just an evangelist for theater. So, you know, sorry, I'm an evangelist for theater. And some of the more gratifying things isn't necessarily pushing people towards, or not pushing, but like making them future theater artists. But like you said, cultivating a new audience. Right. Because like, like Simon Williams, who's full of brilliant things, once said, uh, you know, audiences are super important that's a paraphrase <laughs> <laughs> quote but, simon you know, williams he so, said it with a british said, accent so it, it sounded better but it, uh, audiences are super know, but, important and they're so important <laughs> no he, he said it more cleverly than that but it's like right like we can't just you know perform for the wall i mean you know i mean we could but it's not theater it's not the same it's not I, theater i also really want to reiterate that I sincerely mean this. I want the audience to have a good time. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, like, I don't want them to feel like they're going to the dentist. Right. Right. You know, nothing against dentists out there. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I, I just, I, I do like the idea of, uh, hey, this is a thing you bring a date to. Yeah. Oh, this absolutely. is a thing you go out with your friends afterwards and, and go to the coffee shop or go to the bar and talk and about talk what you about saw. It. Yes. You know, people. People already know they love movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. they love the experience of going to the movies. It's fun, you know. And and theater's a little bit different, but it 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 can be so. Uh, it, it's romantic. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's you know even a tragedy like View from the Bridge or King Lear. Oh, oh I think View from the Bridge is so romantic. Mm-hmm. So romantic. Oh my god. Well, it's cool. so heightened. You know, oh. everything about it is heightened. And it's and just so, it's so passionate. Everybody um, is so committed, you know, and they're committed to this idea, I think. Oh, it's just so tragic that they're committed to like an ideal that they'll never, that you as the right. audience see that they're never going to achieve, but the but they can't move past, you know? Okay. I want to call you out right now. Okay, Maggie. do it. Do it. Be, and this, and make a segue to King Lear. Oh, yeah. Because you were just now speaking very elegiacly of people, you know, 
taking a stand yes, and the okay. beauty of that. Yep. And yet your critique of King Lear seems to be that why can't Cordelia just say a nice little white <laughs> lie beginning of the show? Um, my critique, okay, to be you, fair, my critique okay, of Lear, right, it's deeper than that. my critique of Lear is that I don't understand why people think it is as as groundbreaking and wonderful as it is. Like I, that's my critique is, is for okay. me, it is not the greatest of the Shakespeare tragedies. Ah. It's not as interesting. It's, it, it is one of those things mm-hmm. where I'm like, this is just a bunch of people being very narcissistic and I get tired of watching. I get bored. I get bored almost instantly. And so okay. that's what I don't understand about Lear. Like I could take Lear or leave Lear to be fair, but the people, people are obsessed with it and they just, well, write it, and so I don't. That's Ir- my. Irwin <laughs> was just telling us he wants to entertain us, not instruct us, not make theater the steamed broccoli of of, <laughs> of the <laughs> entertainment world, <laughs> and especially not Shakespeare, right? So, Irwin, t- tell us how do we how. What's, Tell us what's about Lear. Lear. Cause, uh, what cause is we Lear? haven't seen Lear yet. We haven't seen it, but I I hear that it's amazing. We just well, did the Broadway World uh, nominations, and like pretty much everybody got nominated, oh, which is okay. great. Really? Awesome. Oh yes, oh. people are very excited about Lear. Mm. So wow, I didn't know that. I'm seeing it twice next week. I'm seeing both casts, and I'm I'm very excited because I really really wanted to change my mind. So tell yeah. me, she, tell well, me about Lear. Okay. Wants to be well, a first of all, you know what? I'm going to surprise you. Oh, good. A lot of these Shakespeare plays, I do Shakespeare for a living. A lot of them are very problematic at our time right now. And stuff that made sense even to me, like Cordelia doing what she does, when I was in college Mm -hmm. and I read King Lear and was really moved by her nobility, Mm -hmm. now... I question, and culture has changed, and society has changed, and opinions of men and women have changed. Mm. And so, in a way, this is a problem for me when I do Shakespeare. Okay. Actually. Mm. Like, I love the doing of it, but sometimes I feel I also have my doubts about certain things in the plays. However, what I love about King Lear... There are a couple of things that I like about it for right now. First of all, I think none of us would be surprised if Donald Trump got all of his family together in a boardroom and was reading the will and said, okay, family, tell me, which of you does love me the most? True. I think that Donald Trump would do that. We've we've seen him do that. We've seen him sitting around... The, whatever you think of Donald Trump politically, he had his cabinet all give him testaments I, yeah. around that, that's the table. That's exactly what I And so of. there's something really interesting about a need for love. To me, that the two plays share this phrase that, that is used in View from the Bridge, a love that goes where it mustn't. Mm, yeah. And the two mm-hmm. plays kind of share that. And, and the idea that you're right. King Lear doesn't have to happen if Cordelia just goes along with the game. (laughs) But we were talking about the Crucible before. The Crucible doesn't have to happen if John Proctor just goes along with the game. Mm. The truth is, is that maybe we should have some admiration for the fact that she says, you know what, Dad, I'm not putting up with your shit right now. And I'm not going to give you what you want. And I know what you want. 
And she says, I lack that glib and oily art to speak and purpose not. And you know what? That's kind of cool. Now. It definitely, it, it definitely makes a stand. Like it, it, she's it, definitely the iconoclast of the but, play. But in a way, the, to me, I feel what you're saying. And I also feel like, well, how are we going to be moved by this play when the man in charge starts it out by saying, which of you doth love us most? And I will give you your, the largest piece of land to the one who says you do. Now that already is enough to make us hate him. Mm-hmm. So how are we going to be moved at the end if we don't care about him or if we hate him? So the play is operating on a number of levels. And the other thing that I find fascinating about King Lear is it was the existential play before there was existentialism. Mm. It was the the going dark. I mean, there's no Samuel Beckett. I don't know, maybe, you know, all those absurd Ionesco. There's no, I, I mean, maybe they would still be anyway, but there's no doubt that they're not the same without King Lear. Hmm. And so, hmm. yes, King Lear is old. It's over 400 years old. I'd, some of the resonances may feel that kind of dated to us, that we don't, that that behavior, as you're saying, Maggie, leaves us cold in a way. But well, I, I guess think, I, I guess my question is, what am I? What is my takeaway from Lear? Because I guess I'm unclear. Like I've right. I've read it, I've seen it a number of times in in different ways, and I don't know what the takeaway is. Because if I am looking for Cordelia to be the hero and to mm-hmm. be noble, because she says I'm not gonna allow you to treat me like this. Well, then essentially what that action is, is it doesn't, it just screws the rest of the country. And, I, and so I don't really feel like I that's think, super okay. noble. So I'm wondering who the hero is. Who am I supposed to be following? I just don't. Okay, I think, I think, you know, it's funny. As a director, you would think I would be better at helping you to know what the takeaway is. Because you'd think that I would have an idea about that. But sometimes as a director, my way into a show is a visceral one. Mm. And it's almost better for me not to think that way because then I don't get didactic Mm -hmm. and like go, okay, this is the message, everybody. I I actually think it's better for a director to leave that to the audience. You know, let people think what they think and let people talk about it. But what I will say is I think what I've grown to discover about it is it's not about one person, Cordelia, or Lear, it's actually about this idea of what it means to be nothing. Mm-hmm. And after doing Death of Kings mm-hmm. a couple of years ago, where Richard II mm-hmm. says, you know, I, I wish I could remember the exact line, but no man, until man is nothing, you don't really... Yeah. know who you are. Again, I'm not mm-hmm. getting the line right. That's not the line, but it's 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 so in King Lear we have one of the most famous lines in Shakespeare, nothing will come of nothing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But what King Lear learns in the play is uh there's some beautiful speeches where where he says, you know, he sees the character of Edgar who is stripped naked, is disguised as the basest, the lowest form of life there is. And he says, is man no more than this? Mm. Mm -hmm. Here's three of us are sophisticated. Thou art the thing itself. And there is something about how low do we have to go in life to really discover who we really are. 
Hmm. And, and to me, that is bigger. It, like Lear, Cordelia, those are all just the catalysts for us to go there. And the other characters, remember, there's a, there, another part of Lear, which is a whole other parallel story, the story of Gloucester and Edmund right. and Edgar. Right. But so, so to me, and I, I think, again, you know, I was talking before about Arthur Miller's use of I want my name as a theme that he exercised. Shakespeare uses this theme of nothing. He was intrigued by it. And, you know, I tell my students this sometimes. You know, we don't have any writings of Shakespeare other than the plays, the poems. We don't have any diaries. We don't know what he thought about things. He's really a mysterious figure. This is why some people think he didn't write the plays. I don't subscribe to that theory, but I know some people do. Uh, But he's he's a mystery. But we do know certain factual things. For example... Everybody knows there's a play called Hamlet by William Shakespeare. But I bet a lot of people don't know that Shakespeare's only son, who was a twin, died at 11 years old, and his name was Hamnet. Well, hmm. you know what? After Shakespeare's son died, the plays change. Hmm. Now, we don't know what Shakespeare thought of that event, how close he was to his family. He had moved to London, away from Stratford. We don't know. But you know what? Really, anybody in this audience, anybody in this room right now, you know, um, um, I'm talking to people who have children. You know, we, you know, the, I have a son. Losing a son, how it would affect you as an artist going forward. So the idea that that Shakespeare had gone through that himself mm-hmm. and was maybe, and and then out of that came his most prolific tragic period. He wrote all the famous tragedies. You know, Lear, Othello, Hamlet, mm. Macbeth. He wrote those all then around 1600-ish right. to 1606 or so. So, like, so, and he wrote, you know, early in his career, he wrote a play like Comedy of Errors, which is about twins, and it's a big old farce, and it's fun <laughs> and everything. Then he writes later, Twelfth Night, about what? A boy and a girl twin, mm. separated by a shipwreck, thought for dead, mm-hmm. and he reunites them, which he couldn't do in his real life. Mm-hmm. So I just think, like, I tend to get into King Lear as a writer sitting in his room, maybe with his bottle of scotch or whatever yeah. he had then, <laughs> yeah. and kind of going into a kind of a depth of existential um, crisis and... And it's like burrowing into the existential earth. Mm. And that this play is is the most rich in that regard of of maybe any play of all time in some ways. So it's almost forgotten what Cordelia did. It's almost forgotten it's what almost he did at first. Thing. Now here's the thing. I have cut the play. Right. Drastically. This is only yeah. 90 I've cut minutes. it to it's only ninety minutes, and I'll be really interesting to talk to you afterwards. Like, yeah, well, uh, and I can't wait to hear yeah. what you think of the I cutting. Yeah, you know, and and but you too, Maggie, and and to see because Maggie, you have a certain attitude about King Lear. I'm interested if in this streamlined version, what you think of it. My only doubts about the streamlined version is to cut out some of this. Yeah. Existential. Mm 
weirdness mm-hmm. and depth, which can be interminable for the audience. Right. But there's <laughs> sure. a reason it's in there. And, you know, in some ways, maybe the next time I do Lear, I wouldn't cut a word and just let it be what it is. And people can walk out and leave if they want to. But it it's kind of... I understand the impulse why somebody wants to do Hamlet uncut because you yeah. just want to like leave it there for everybody to see and comment on. So that's how I that's how I feel about Lear. I also think again, getting back to my role as as a professor, um, one thing you didn't mention was that when we do King Lear at, at UCSB, because I don't have enough to do aside from directing <laughs> View from the Bridge and King Lear I also directed it twice because we have two casts right, both right. led by the amazing Brian Harwell yes. as King Lear but the reason we have two casts is because my Naked Shakes program which I run in the summer is is actually it's different from A View from the Bridge A View from the Bridge is our normal main stage shows fully designed auditions King Lear is different King Lear is from Naked Shakes which is two classes put together in the summer that make up the doing of a Shakespearean play so as a result, what I love about Naked Shakes is I have people who are our most experienced BFA students. I also have a math majors who've never been in a play before. Mm, but the idea that we all come together, that the best way to study King Lear is to do it. So in this particular case, because it's King Lear and so many students were interested in that, which gives me hope. We had over 30 students who wanted to be in it. And so rather than me turning people away, I thought, let me give people acting opportunities. We'll we'll split it in half. We'll divide it. We'll kind of do two rosters, the red team and the blue team kind of thing of King Lear. And so audiences can come see. And and one of the things I love is Charles Donlin in The Independent. He was so wonderful. He he came and reviewed both casts and printed a review two weeks in a row. And in the second one, he said, I think this is the way to see King Lear. Mm. Only 90 Ooh. minutes, only 90 minutes, but see it twice with mm-hmm. the two groups. So instead of seeing it once for three and a half hours, come see it twice. <laughs> you see it twi- and yeah. like, like a great restaurant or like a great piece of music yeah. or like, you know, anything that needs, you know, needs to be experienced more yeah. than once, King Lear has that kind of richness to it. I don't think it changes a word you said, Maggie. I, you know, like it really doesn't. Like it still may make you, you might leave there and you might go, you I know might what? Still hate it. <laughs> well, you might, yeah, you might say to yourself, but you know what it's the, why it's does the, she have to do that? It's the content. It's not like, I'm sure that I will be very impressed with the production itself. It's the content that I, that I, but what I think that you've said that's so interesting that is actually making me think a lot about this is, uh, for instance, when we were talking about the the Arthur Miller, um, actually, Shad asked me, well, what's this one about? And I was like, well, it's Arthur Miller. Like, it's probably going to be like a sad sort of underprivileged guy who's really obsessed with respect and, you know, makes some mm. bad choices. Like, and it's all tragic. You know, I was like, I don't know. I haven't read up on it, but mm-hmm. that's probably what mm-hmm. it's about. And he was like, well, that makes sense. That was kind of the the time that he lived in and the, you know. The concerns. That's what he was writing about. Right. And I guess... We have always sort of joked about, oh, there's only one comedy and that of the Shakespearean comedies. They're all the same and this, that, and the other. And I guess I never really thought about Shakespeare was writing about what he was living, too. I think I was just no so question. removed from, because he's such a concept, right. you know, Shakespeare the concept, the literary concept, versus Shakespeare the person who wrote about his life and just right. happened to write a bunch of things that all... Right. So that's really interesting. Also, also remember, Shakespeare was the master of the remake. 
Mm-hmm. You know, he didn't actually Leaders. come up with a lot of the stories yeah. himself. There are very few original stories. I think Midsummer Night's Dream might be one of the only ones. So he was a master of, you know, kind of like what hip hop artists do now. Look, especially with you know, twenty years ago, the idea of sampling, right? And you know, and the, the kind of the idea of using old material and invigorating it with a new, fresh take. Mm-hmm. That's what he was a master at. Mm-hmm. So, so as a result, you you if you look at it in that light, you almost look at it like, well, what did he decide to change from the original? And that right. tells you a little bit about what he was interested in, and that 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 interests interests me a lot. You know. Um, in in that regard. That's right. I remember when we did the Shakespeare panel at Ensemble after they did Macbeth, uh, that we you guys were discussing the origin, oh, the, right? The of origin. the yeah, and I thought that was so fascinating. The origin I, of of which of Macbeth you mean? Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Sorry, we were yes we were talking right. about the origin of Macbeth and and the. Um, Hollinshed, the yes, yes, yes. source right. material. Yeah. And and actually Macbeth is is written right after Lear. Okay. So But also Anna, close. this is why I want to work with you on a project. Because Because she knows her fucking because, business. Well, no, because <laughs> I love this meeting of the minds that way in a production. I love that. And and I think mm-hmm. working for a university has actually made me discover a newfound love mm. of that, mm. which is mm-hmm. which is very exciting. You know, one of the things I've done this summer, which uh, is profound, is that I team teach a course called Experiencing Shakespeare mm. with an English professor named Jim Kearney, who I love. And we kind of riff off each other like jazz musicians. And yeah. a lot of these same freshmen I was talking about, they take, they have taken this course. And then we have actually undergraduate mentors so we have actors from king lear mm. who come into that class and are mentors in the show cool. actors who you love like jeremy sharp was in it mm. th- this year yeah. and you know some mm. of some of the some of the others and so as a result <laughs> as a result it's a real meeting of different approaches yeah. but it's centered around putting on a play which is what i think it's yeah. always about yeah because that's not theoretical in any way that is tangible and that is or maybe that's just where i'm coming from you know so so i i i find these kind of conversations in that way very exciting maybe i've become more of a nerd in my in my <laughs> old age but this is the kind of stuff i can talk about theater nerds are the our time. favorite people. there you go i that's love right. that's what this whole podcast that's is right. about you know, I theater nerdistry I, I love it i love it i love <laughs> and it and these casts have really strong leadership with you and with oh, with yeah. brian i mean no brian question. is a very strong actor now, and here's here's the thing let me say about brian brian harwell who who has really well known to this community um at the risk of sounding hokey I love this man so much, and he is so humble and unpretentious, and he has incredible, like, think about it. I had to direct this play twice, Mm -hmm. two different casts. (laughs) He was there all the time. We had a brush-up rehearsal this last Saturday because we brought it back from the summer. We had three and a half hours with cast one, Three and a half hours with cast two. Ooh. And then that night, cast one performed. Oh, my Brian God. did the whole day. Now, Brian, you know, Brian and I, my, I think my favorite thing about this King Lear experience, and maybe, Maggie, this is what answers your question. Maybe I can't speak for the audience, 
But what I can tell you is that Brian and I would get together after every rehearsal and we'd sit out on a bench outside at night and we would just, I would give him notes and we'd talk about what the play means and what the role means and where to keep going further. And I will never forget this. Very, very special for me as, as a director. And, uh, I've watched him grow as an actor mm. in this community for years and years. I know that there are many people who might listen to this, you know, people like Rick Mokler at City College, people like Katie Laris, people who know Brian, have worked with Brian and know how much that he mm-hmm. has has grown. Mm-hmm. You know, this is this is tremendously uh, uh, ex- exciting for, to me that he would have this chance. And I said to him just the other night, I said, you know what, Brian, it's yours now. You know, you... The, the pain, the love, the depth of this, it's yours now. Yeah. So uh, I'm glad you haven't seen it yet. You know why? It's giving him a chance to really experience it more. You know, people forget also, a lot of these great plays, like View from the Bridge, King Lear, you know, if they were done on Broadway, the actors would have weeks of previews right. before any critics would come, and then they would get to run it. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, you know, UCSB, our runs are so short. Yeah. That like, how can you expect a, a student actor to 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 accomplish something that even a professional actor can't accomplish right. in that short of a of, of a period of time? But I'm hoping that with the performances we have left, that Brian Brian just goes to a sort of a a very mysterious place mm-hmm. again to answer your question about why should we care about King Lear? Or that wasn't exactly your question, but there's a mystery down there with it. Mm-hmm. There's a depth of something that it plummets, it plums, I should say that that is that is unknowable and un, and I won't, I I'm hoping Brian can continue to go there. That's 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 my hope. Ooh. You know, I have and, chills. Yeah, yeah I know. no, I mean, I'm look, so excited. Look, I'm excited, and also I've women, never been excited about Lear in my life, and well, I'm pretty, I don't know I'm if pretty we'll excited. I don't know if we succeed. I mean, the whole, <laughs> again, the whole thing. The other thing is, I hope that it it's funny because. I'm so excited about this rep of View from the Bridge and King Lear. It's something that we haven't done before. And in effect, we have three productions because we have these two casts of King Lear. I love the idea that you can go to see a View from the Bridge in the afternoon, let's say on a Sunday afternoon, and go to have a nice dinner and then go to see Lear at night or vice versa on certain days or see them on alternating nights. I love that because they're both asking these questions about patriarchy and about love and about... Mm -hmm. They're both asking those things from two different prisms, which is very exciting. You know, so, so, uh, but, but even more than that, what I was going to say was because View from the Bridge is more quote unquote produced, mm-hmm. it has more richer designs. It has mm-hmm. sort of the whole departmental resources behind it mm-hmm. in a different way. And King Lear is naked shakes, which is well more naked, Right. Yeah. you know, you're, you're just going out there and hopefully you're listening to the play. And, and I think you may continue to have the same feeling that you have <laughs> but i also think you don't get to see king lear very much yeah. and even no. even as an audience member you know what i'm going to go and hear it clear and intimate and then i'll make up my mind well i feel too like every time i've seen king lear it's been just very straight king lear you know and i get the feeling going into it that 
the director or the producer or whoever hasn't really thought about it out of the box at all. They're safe. They say, here's Lear. We're going to do Lear because people need to cross that off of their right. sort of bucket list experience. Well, I saw Lear. People you know? will see it. Yeah. yeah. You know, and, and I, so I'm really excited to see what you have done with it because I feel like you have taken it and turned it into your Lear. And I, I don't think I would ever choose a list, a play for that bucket list kind of thing. I think, you know, the thing about, being a director is you have to go to rehearsal every night. You have to live there and do it. And it's got your name on it. Mm -hmm. And you have to sit out in the audience and watch it. You know, so if you do it for the wrong reasons, you could really regret it. Now, sometimes you do things for the money. Everybody (laughs) does, right? You know, but I'm never usually as happy when I've done things like that. They usually never has the same payoff. I'm really fortunate at UCSB that I can choose the projects. And also you go through different times in your life. Mm -hmm. I think especially with Shakespeare, there aren't that many of these plays. So you go through different phases. You know, Mm -hmm. some plays really affect you at 25 and then you don't care about them. I didn't really care about Hamlet that much till I turned 50. Mm. Why is that? I don't know. Maybe I didn't. Maybe I wasn't mature enough. Hmm. Maybe I just didn't understand it in a certain way. You know, other times certain plays, like the history plays, which is why yeah. I created uh, Death of Kings, interest me in a new and a different way. But you know, maybe twenty years from now, I won't care about those. Hmm. It, it's just I think it's I, I just think it's very interesting to go through like a roller coaster of waves of up sure. and down with the with these things. Who knows? Maybe you'll experience King Lear. Maybe I'll it's like, always a different show. Ma- it's true. You know? It's always a different it's show. It's true, and I you never I know how much figure it out this time. Like the this production the one that... is informing your that's true preference and and or dislike. You know, Plus, you as never I say, know. Maybe maybe in itself, the, the whole explanation I was giving about the difference between View from the Bridge and King Lear is that maybe there's an enjoyment of the disparity of talent, the the idea that we have international students who are attempting to speak this language. My God, we have Chinese students speaking King Lear. I can't imagine if I would go to China and try to speak their language. No. no. So <laughs> it, it, it's quite, I'm kind of in awe of yeah, these that's students. Incredible. That's incredible. Awesome. So what I'm saying is, is that is that there's something about the we're all in this together yeah. that maybe some people find even more charming than than the more fully produced, slicker, you know, version mm-hmm. of, some, of something. I love else. the the whole ethos of Naked Shakes. I think it's so interesting, and I do think that it it really puts the language on display in a way that you don't necessarily get when you just go out and sort of like roll the dice at Shakespeare. I think that it's it's very considered, and it it does a really good job of explaining things that maybe you wouldn't. You know, that the layperson who doesn't know Shakespeare, who can't tune into the language and get like, they still get something out of it. Like Much Ado was great. It was charming. Well, thank you. And I, 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 I have a lot of theories about that. You know, I tell the actors all the time, if you think you don't understand this, your audience is way more intimidated than you are. And audiences come in and they are not brought into the plays and they think it's them. They think, oh, I'm just too stupid to understand Shakespeare. I'll never, and they don't want to go back Mm -hmm. for good Mm -hmm. reason. Sure. You know, and, 
sometimes they'll then give a standing ovation to something that they don't even like very much because they think, well, that guy was like really British and really, you know, really <laughs> He cried on loud. command and I feel right. like... So right, so I just didn't understand it. Whereas, <laughs> you know, my my approach is almost like this is... It's ironic because doing this podcast, I love podcasts. I mm. love radio. I love the idea of reeling people in mm-hmm. through listening in a way. And at the same time, the thing that's been the amazing discovery for me for Naked Shakes over the years is that it has been liberating theatrically. Mm. You don't need, you know, literal entrances mm. and exits. You can you you are free in an almost cinematic way mm-hmm. to to create using the resources of the the resource of the actor alone. Right. And also I think as a trainer of actors, yeah. the idea of training young people to be both incredibly precise with language and text and also incredibly physically free Mm -hmm. and imaginative Mm -hmm. and physical storytellers. Finding that balance together is what I feel like, how can that not help any young actor, whatever they do after this? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so that, that to me is, is, is what, we're after, and also when you don't have very many props or very much scenery or anything like that, I, I'm a big believer in not making things that are redundant to the language. I'll give you an example in King Lear. We only have piano player, mm. and there's a line, sound trumpets. Now, I could have easily cut that line, easily. Mm. But I like the fact that he says sound trumpets and you hear a chord on the piano. Mm. And then and then he says again and you hear another chord. Again, another chord. And to me, that that the way the elements work together, my colleague Daniel Stein calls it perpendicularity. It's mm. not parallel, it's not it it's it's how you sort of lay two things perpendicular to one another and how they work work together. Mm. And uh, I just, I, I love that. The more I've been doing this over the years, the more I've been feeling like, don't create things that get in the way yeah. of the image being evoked in the language. Let the audience hear that and, and experience that. Absolutely. You know, I'll give you a couple examples if you don't mind. Do. You know, when I first got to UCSB, my first big production, I'm not sure, Anna, if you were there then, like 2001. I directed Midsummer Night's Dream, and it was a huge production of Midsummer Night's Dream. It was it was fine, and and we had thirty seven people in it, actors and dancers. Wow. That was the exciting thing, but I felt like I was a young professor at that point, and the set designer was a very experienced professor, and I almost kind of feel like he hijacked it from me, mm-hmm. and not it, it's not that what he created wasn't beautiful. It's just it wasn't what I wanted to do. So then my very first Naked Shakes play years later was Midsummer Night's Dream. And then I did it in a smaller theater with just the black curtains. And I thought, when the actors talk about the forest, I want you to see the black curtains. I don't want you to see our depiction of what the forest is. Let you conjure up what it is. And then I directed Midsummer Night's Dream a third time and stripped it down even more, where we did it basically in a classroom with fluorescent lights to again keep finding the depth of the play but almost through a kind of perpendicularity of the environment. Mm-hmm. So, you know, um, now King Lear, I haven't directed before this. Oh, this so, is the first time. Yes, I've been in it. Okay. I've oh, acted who, in it. Who did you I play? I have played Albany and Cornwall. <laughs> oh, I've also played Kent. I played Kent oh, at Shakespeare okay. Santa Cruz. Kent is a, is a fantastic part, you know, um, 
but he spends a lot of the play going, my lord, come in. Come in from the cold. <laughs> Those are some good lines. God damn it, come in. Yes, come Jesus. in, my lord. I, what are we still doing out here? Yeah. You know, um, Erwin, I've often thought that's why movies of Shakespeare fall short, or, mm-hmm. or is because yes. they're ex- so excessive with their they fall in love with their mise-en-scene and yes. and you know you, and they can't help it because it's a movie in a way i think branna when when he did hamlet he he maybe purposefully picked a very spare set and you know pretty clean lines right. pretty clean shots and and put the emphasis and and i think he can act fairly well too so that helps but. also, also the, <laughs> the soliloquies never seem to work in movies and yeah. right. the language mm-hmm. seems to fall short in an odd way yeah. but i agree with you you know the things that film does well are unmatched you know the way that film creates a sense of place the way that mm-hmm. editing tells a story i mean i love film i'm not a snob about these yeah. things i love movies and tv i like binge watching as oh, much yeah. as the next person right. you know and and i feel like like you know when a movie captures that when a movie captures what a movie does well it's amazing with shakespeare it, it there have been some great shakespearean films but it but it it always feels to me like it it doesn't quite match. It's too literal. Yeah. It's interesting. Like I have friends who are who have started their careers in television writing and, and screenwriting. You know, they they went to USC or UCLA, wherever, and they're they're they were in theater because that's kind of where you start. Um, it's more accessible in like the high the public high school, you know. Yeah, so definitely. but they absolutely, and I have continued on with playwriting and, you know, we'll switch around and they'll send me their stuff and I'll send them my stuff. And what is so interesting to me is how different the same material written for the screen versus written for the stage. It is absolutely different. I think that people don't necessarily no, think don't. of the the specific differences. And so when you see these things that are on stage versus on the screen, it's not even, it's a different art form. Well, also think about, think about Shakespeare himself, his challenge. First of all, he wrote before, not only before could even conceive of film, but he wrote before electricity. Right. So his theater, he's writing plays for people to come and see at two o'clock in the afternoon. (laughs) And so when you write a play like King Lear and you're writing The Storm, storm, Mm -hmm. how do you convey The Storm in a film? Yeah, you can yeah, make there. Have a, storm. a great kick-ass storm. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so Shakespeare is trying to create that through what is being said. Right. And that's and so if you can create that amazing storm on film, film doesn't need words as much. Right. Film, sure. Like like screenplays are not are 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 different. Arthur Miller, for example, in Death mm. of a Salesman mm. might write a 15-minute scene between two people. That doesn't happen in film. Right. You know, three minutes is a long time. Mm -hmm. And for good reason, because film is magical in what it can do. If Shakespeare were alive today, he might be a completely Mm. different writer because he might be, you know, uh, um, he might be, I I don't know, a a great film artist. You know, I've always thought that that to me, the modern-day Shakespeare is people like, you know, Martin Scorsese and having his own company with Robert De Niro and Joe Pesci and them doing movie mm-hmm. after movie mm-hmm. after movie mm-hmm. and using the same people and, yeah. you know, or or that that to me is sort of the modern day 
Shakespeare company in an odd way. Well, I want to ask you, too, about how you came to A View from the Bridge. Like, was Lear in place in your mind first, and then you thought... I know this. This would be a good compliment. Yeah. How do those no, work you know in rep? Well, here's what's here's what's very very interesting. I had directed View from the Bridge before at UCSB in 2004, a long time ago, in a completely different theater hmm. in our big Hatland Theater, big proscenium production, used completely different music, different creative hmm. team, and um, this View from the Bridge is the first play other than Shakespeare that I've done at UCSB that I've repeated. A show, and again, part of it is because in my role as educator, we have cycles of four years, so you can repeat a play because for the students, it's completely a fresh experience and them sure. getting to do it. But interestingly enough, last year I directed this amazing play, Lydia, by mm. Octavio mm-hmm. Solis, and that play was a play about a dysfunctional family and immigration and Mm -hmm. and just such an interesting play and we did it in the round in the same theater and I thought to myself you know what I think Arthur Miller is actually the ancestor of this play yeah I see a lot of similarities no question no question so it was Lydia that inspired me Mm. wanting to do view from the bridge the other thing too is I was teaching an acting class and we did some scenes from view from the bridge and I just went this material is is coming up I want to do this I want to do this again So then I'm pretty sure I chose Lear after that. I didn't know Mm -hmm. I was going to do Lear. So they were done kind of independently. But the reason we're able to do a rep is that normally we bring back the Naked Shakes show at the beginning of our fall quarter. But if somebody else in my faculty is directing the fall show... I'm sort of imposing on them when we bring the show back. Like they might have the same actors in rehearsal. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we have to say, well, can you give them free (laughs) Friday night? Can you cancel your rehearsal so that we can work on the play? In this case, since I'm directing both, I'm kind of fighting with myself. (laughs) And as a result, I thought, okay, I'll go to the department and say, let's do these in repertory. Let's give the audience this experience like they have at Oregon Shakespeare Festival or other places where you can kind of go to a festival feeling of this. You know, John Blondell has always done really interesting things in this regard. and, and, And I just, I really like that. I think yeah. audiences would really like yeah. that. And I think the two plays work together in this. Oh, yeah. One is a tragedy about this great king, 400, over 400 years old. The other is the 1950s, this tragedy of a, of a guy who works on the docks in Brooklyn. By the way, that's another thing we didn't mention about View from the Bridge that is something that really appeals to me. I just love anything New York. <laughs> And Brooklyn, and you know, these are like, you know, I spent my entire adult life in New York before coming here, and my relatives are from mm. Brooklyn. My mother was born in Brooklyn, and you know, my favorite aunt and uncle and cousins in the world are from Brooklyn, and I used to stay out in Brooklyn, and I, I just, I just like, even as I'm talking to you, I want to like talk yeah, like I'm from Brooklyn, from Brooklyn, you know. Yeah. But so, so I just, I just love, I mean, New York theatrically. And so yeah. View from the Bridge, it's great to hear, even if you're a kid in Southern California in Santa Barbara who's never been out of California before, you're listening to, hey, you know, yeah. forget about it. You know, it's the same reason we love The Sopranos and mm-hmm. we love the, you know, any of that yeah. kind of entertainment, you know? Yeah. So anyway, that's... that's. Uh, yeah, and very topical, too. I mean, it might be set 70 years ago, but it's very topical. A lot of people keep saying that. A lot of people yeah. come to see View from the Bridge and they're saying... 
this is amazingly topical at this moment. Well, and it's interesting, too, because when you have, so let's take, for instance, the immigration issue. And when you look at Lydia, which is about people coming over the border from Mexico, versus this is a, a view from the bridge is people coming over from Italy. And I think that there's a distance that makes that more... I don't know if more sympathetic is the right thing, but when I watch View from the Bridge, I see all of these characters as being sympathetic without being wrapped up in the politics. Whereas when I watched Lydia, I was like, oh man, this is there's all this like political backlash that surrounds this. So when I want to be sympathetic to these characters, there's also this other sort of modern day yeah. political you know, you're, you're thing s- that hangs Maggie, on it. I think you've hit on something really, really interesting that. It, it's almost the value of metaphor and how how when we find the right metaphor for something, that other stuff really sinks in deep down. Mm-hmm. You know, Arthur Miller did that himself. I mean, when he had to name names for the House on American Oof. Activities Committee, what did he do? He wrote The Crucible, which yeah. is the Salem Witch Trials. Yeah, right. That became the metaphor, yeah. the, the, the emblem, as it were. He didn't write a play about Joseph McCarthy. He wrote about yeah. Salem, Massachusetts. I mean, we still call it you the know. witch trials, right? The witch hunt. That's hunts. right. Like we that's do it now. Like Trump right. does we it st- in his tweets. We still do it. That's witch right. hunt. Blah blah blah. Right. So finding the finding the metaphor. Yeah. I think what you're saying, Maggie, is you actually feel it more. Yeah. Than if it's kind of. And it disarms people too, because because mm-hmm. you know they walk in. Everyone walks in with their whole worldview, and 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 if you're watching something set. 70 years ago, you don't, you, you let go of Mm -hmm. your preconceptions Mm -hmm. about what these issues are. And you're just in the humanity of the drama with these people in front of you. Which is how I always like plays anyway. Yeah. You know, I think sometimes kind of like, I always feel this way about music, you know, songs that were just straight ahead, outward protest songs were never as effective to me Mm. growing up. You know, I didn't love Bob Dylan because he just wore protest on his sleeve. He he protested in a way that was poetic and mm-hmm. interesting and, you know, kind of from the art point of view. I always thought those were the better protests, but... It's yeah. hard to look at someone who is protesting and all you can see is the sake of protest, right? right. Like, just like the stench of anarchy. It's like, okay, well, there has to be something uh-huh. deeper than that. Yeah. And I, so I think that when people sort of express what they would like to see rather than just saying, like, I have a problem with authority. Right. It's, in a, it's in a, a way, lot more poignant. In a way, in this day and age, the greatest protesters are the comedians. Mm-hmm. And part of it is because they're able to be on the nose without being on the nose in yeah. exactly the mm-hmm. right way. And as a result, the message is zingier. Or, right. Or, right. Right. You know. And that's why the fool can speak to Lear. No question, no question. The yeah. uh, fool is tough because it's all this Elizabethan stuff, and mm-hmm. you know. Yes. But that's exactly right. I've been I've been telling both actors playing the fools in each cast. Mm. Jeremy is one of them, by the way. Excellent. That 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 um, um, about the idea of like you know the fool is in the tradition of the or I shouldn't say the fool is in the tradition. In the tradition of the fool are the Stephen Colbert's, the John Stewart's, that's the right. Bill Mars, the you know Samantha Bees. The, the that's the tradition of the fool. Right. 
And and so I've been trying to get those actors to get that attitude yeah. in them as they yeah. play the fool, oh, as opposed to being a sort of an Elizabethan caricature, right? You Bells know, the, on the, the idea of the yeah. jester, yeah, right. Our jesters now, you know, Jimmy Kimmel talking about healthcare, yeah. right. that's the jester, right, 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 right. Although he's kind of straightforward about that one with what has happened, but you know. Anyway, but he has the ethos to speak in a way that we don't let other people speak to us. Exactly, exactly. Which is why that message gets through. Right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Well, I'm excited. I'm excited too. I'm very excited. So, view from the bridge. When does that run? Tell okay. us when it runs. Uh, um, I wish I could tell you the exact performance. <laughs> I will tell you that both shows run through November 19th. Great. I I, I do have it here. Excellent. It's, um, a View from the Bridge, uh, November 8, 9, 11, 16, 17, 18th at 8 p.m., November 19th at 2 p.m., and then King Lear, November 10, 14, and 18, 15, 19, and a matinee on uh, November 11th. And there will be a quiz. There will be after. a quiz. But you know what I was going to say was that the easy thing to do for your listeners is if you go to www.theaterdance, yeah. and that's all one word, theater dance, theater E-R, E-R. theaterdance.ucsb.edu. And on we'll the have website, the link on our site. That, oh, that's yes, we'll have it you, on thank you so www.theatrixsb.com. Pretty much you can guess that between, uh, like we don't have a show tonight, and after tonight, we pretty much have a show Every day mm-hmm. until November nineteenth, something's playing. Just over keep there. going. Yeah, just keep going. Just you're going to get in there. Or view from the bridge, mm-hmm. and you know, right? If you just show up, you'll just, probably just see something. You'll see o'clock. something great. Right. Yeah, <laughs> and it's the performing theater arts theater, which many people. You know, one of the things that makes me so sad is that so many people from the community don't want to come onto campus. Oh, There's people just, need to get over that. Well, no, it's just it's hard to find your way around. It's hard to park. All of those things that people that they, is the laziest I know, thing. I know, I, I know, but I know. There's a parking structure literally ten there feet you away Thank you, from Maggie. the theater. But we're I'm always sorry. fighting that battle. Yeah, <laughs> you know it's what? True. Everybody is fighting mm-hmm. that battle. That's the constant battle right. for everybody in Santa Barbara. Please come see our shows. Yeah, go see the shows. They're really good. It will broaden your horizons. It's yeah. a great date night, and, and they've done research. Going to see theater makes people happier than. And almost any other thing that people do. Seriously. Including, yeah. Yeah. I also think, as I said before. Live performance. I think seeing these young people. Oh, yeah. You know, like seeing. First of all, if you are that age yourself, you're seeing your contemporaries. Right. If you're older, you're seeing up and comers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's something very exciting about that. Very yeah. special about that. These are people whose hearts are in it. And I remember when I was in college, that's when I truly loved doing theater. It wasn't a yes. business then. Right. It was it was I had the bug as yeah. we call right. it. And these students have the bug and they and they're willing. I mean, one of the reasons I love directing UCSB is cuz these students are willing to go to the mat for you. They may not always like it, but they're willing to go for it. They you definitely know? do. And so and so that allows us to do what we do. Yeah. And I, I mean, I can say that a view from the bridge, the acting was absolutely professional quality. It was oh, definitely, great. definitely. Yeah. Thank you. I will pass that on to the actors. Yeah, yeah, yeah they did. A we great worked job. really hard at that. Yeah, and they did. They they deserve a lot of credit. Yeah, 
Yay. 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 Well, thank you, Erwin, so much for oh, being here. This was so much fun. And talking about your show. Yeah. Thank we you love for, talking thank, about it with you. you know You're what? fantastic. Oh, thank you for having me. I <laughs> love talking to the two of you and and David, who the audience doesn't see. But, uh, you know, I just, I, I love it. And, and I mean, I really appreciate you making me feel so welcome and, yeah. and just, just, uh, it's it's this has been a joy. I think that means he'll come back. That's good. Anytime. We'll have to, we'll have, to have you on again. I'll do anything for you guys. You, Excellent. You, you, know, you have to do is ask. That's on tape. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> save that. Save that. Save that, that for real. Save that <laughs> Thank you, Erwin. <laughs> Thank you. show today. Thanks to Miles Austin for our wonderful music and David Paris for the lovely production. And thanks to Erwin Apple, director of King Lear and View from the Bridge, happening at UCSB for the next uh, week or so. Yeah, for check for the guests. dates. Yeah, Check for the on dates our on our website, theatricsb.com. Also, check us out on Instagram, Twitter, theatricsb, and stay tuned. Next week, we will have Melissa Marino talking about Taming of the Shrew. And stay tuned for our signature cocktail, which is in the works. Yay! Yay!